We're going to continue in our series where we're looking at the life of Jesus. And so if you've been here this summer, we have talked about, oftentimes we're really familiar with the birth of Jesus, we're familiar with the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we're not always familiar with the way Jesus lived his life, what he prioritized and what he valued. So that's where we're looking this summer is into, uh, we're talking about birth and death and resurrection, but we're also talking about other parts of Jesus' life. So kind of taking a a quick flyover for Jesus' life for the summer. Now, uh, this morning we're going to talk about the compassion of Jesus. We've talked about the birth of Jesus and the baptism and the temptation and the identity of Jesus, but today we're going to talk about the compassion of Jesus. Now, when we think of compassion... That is something that everybody or most everybody in our world would say, yeah, we value compassion. Whether you love Jesus, whether you follow Jesus or not, you would say, yeah, compassion is a good thing. If our world was more compassionate, our world would probably be somewhat of a better place, right? We've had numerous nonprofits over the years, started with the core of their foundation being compassion. Right, compassion for the poor, compassion for the dead, compassion or compassion for the dying, compassion for the lonely or the um, addicted. Right, over and over, ministries, things happening in our world. Like, man, we want to care for those people well and show compassion to those types of people. Nowadays, we also have like for-profit businesses that are requiring some type of like compassion training, right? Where you've got to, we want to help you be a better employee, and the way you would do that is to be a better listener and to empathize more, to tolerate more behaviors that are different than yours. And then you start to get into those kind of things like, wait a second, I don't, I don't know if that's the compassion of Jesus. So even though like, the world values compassion. What is it that makes the compassion of Jesus and his followers different than the compassion of the world? That's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. What makes Christian compassion unique? So again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at uh, four verses specifically in Matthew, then we'll be in some other places as well. But Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 35 to 38. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the, their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Now, the end of this chapter, what we just read, is kind of a transitional text in Jesus' ministry. So chapters 8 and 9, what we find is Jesus is doing um, a lot of kind of individual ministry himself. He is, uh, there's a lot of crowds following him. <coughs> Excuse me. And then uh, he's doing it mostly on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee in this area called Capernaum. So it's just kind of a very small place that Jesus is doing ministry. Well, right here in verse 35, we find out that now he's going throughout all the cities and villages. So his ministry is expanding. He's done great ministry work. In chapter 9 alone, he has encountered um, blind people that he's healed, 
a paralyzed person that walks again, a demon-possessed person that he cast out, uh, a ruler's daughter that was dead that he brought back to life, a woman who had this issue of blood for 12 years and no doctor could figure out how to solve the issue. And Jesus, due to her faith and touching his garment, he heals her immediately. And so Jesus is interacting with all these people and there's so much healing taking place. And now that ministry is expanding beyond that northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And in chapter 10, we're not going to get into it, but this is important for us to know for this uh, text this morning. In chapter 10, what you have is Jesus naming his 12 apostles, and then what he's going to do with those 12 apostles is send them out. So it's going from like kind of single ministry, and now ministry is expanding beyond a small region to a bigger region, and more people are getting involved at this point, okay? And so, <clears throat> sorry, I, I had this cough, you know, back last fall, and it's back, and I can't get rid of it again. This is just like two times a year. You just got to deal with me coughing often, okay? Sorry. Um, so... Um, Here in verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all those cities and villages. And what's he doing? He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and every affliction. And as he does all these things, not only is there healings happening, but there's ridicule and criticism happening from all many different people, all the religious leaders for the most part. Like They're like, we don't like you. We don't like what you're about. You're hurting our ministry. So all these things are kind of colliding at the same point. Now, verse 36, When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you'll probably have that verse memorized by the end of the morning, all right? Because we're going to read that one often. When he saw the crowds, who was in the crowds that day? We don't know specifically from this text, but other times in Jesus' ministry, the crowds often had lost people, people who didn't know Jesus, religious people, and Jesus' followers. So there's kind of this mixture of all these different people within this crowd, okay? Now, when did he see the crowd? In the midst of doing great ministry. He was busy doing really great ministry, and in the midst of it all, he notices the crowds. In the midst of healing people and proclaiming the kingdom and teaching in their synagogues, he sees a bigger picture. As ministry expands, ridicule expands, Jesus notices people. Guys, this is the first step of compassion. This is the pre- prerequisite of compassion. To actually see people and become aware of what's going on in their lives. And for Jesus, busyness wasn't an excuse. Busyness doing really good things. Because maybe there's people in here, you go, well, I serve the church. I don't have time to stop for that person. I'm a connection group leader, but I don't really have time for that. I'm doing great ministry work, but I don't have time to notice the crowds around me. Because that's not the way that Jesus lived his life. Compassion requires us to be able to slow down. Slow down even from good stuff, right? I'm not even saying like, oh, you're missing out on people all around you because you're just scrolling on your phone all the time. Or you're missing out because you're just binging a show, right? Like, some of you might be missing out on the crowds and the opportunity to show compassion because you're doing really good stuff but you're missing all the people that god puts around you and we know a story that jesus told he told this parable one time called the good samaritan even if you didn't grow up in church you might have heard this story 
So there was this guy, and he was walking down the road, and he's robbed, and he's beaten, and he's left for dead. And then in Luke chapter 10, <coughs> this is what it says. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, the guy that was left for dead, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? Compassion. Now, Jesus tells this story when he's been asked, Hey, who is my neighbor? You said I should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I should love my neighbor as myself. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him this story. Your neighbor's everybody. Not just the people who are like you. Not the people who are just, that live next door to you. The people that are different. But who were the people that passed by this guy that day? The religious leaders. The priest and the Levite, probably doing good ministry work. But who stops? The Samaritan, the one that's very different. It wasn't an Israelite. He stops. And he shows compassion. Guys, are you too busy in order to see the people that Jesus is putting around you? Just a good question for us to consider this morning. So back to verse 36. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. Now, what is biblical compassion? When we look at the Old Testament, compassion is often related to pity or mercy. And this comes up often in Scripture. You won't see compassion often in the Old Testament, but what you'll see is he was merciful or or he had pity on somebody else. All right. So when the Israelites were in Egypt... God looked upon them with compassion or mercy, and he said, hey, I want to, I'm going to bring you out of Egyptian slavery. I see that the situation that you're in is broken. It is not right. It is not what, what I have for my people forever, to leave them in that slavery. So I'm going to bring them out of that. I'm going to have compassion and mercy. And then they wander around in the wilderness and they need food and they need drink. And God again shows mercy and compassion to them by providing daily bread for them. By providing water for them. Again, a merciful, compassionate God. And then the Israelites, they decide, man, we're going to just worship idols. We don't care about this. You're not doing what we, you want us to, we want you to, you're not doing what we want you to do. Couldn't get that one out. And, um... So we're going to start worshiping idols. So God calls Moses, their leader, up onto this mountain. He said, hey, I'm going to give you some guidelines, some laws for you to follow, your people to follow, to guide my relationship with you. And as he's up on this mountain, God reveals himself to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 34, this is what God says. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, word can also be translated compassionate. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithful faithfulness. God. This is who our God is. He is merciful or compassionate. He's gracious. He's steadfast. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in all these great characteristics. And one of the characteristics that describes our God is compassionate. If you've ever found yourself in a place going, I just don't know that I'm the most compassionate person. You may have found yourself not looking like our God. 
This is who our God is. He's a compassionate God. This was the idea in the Old Testament. That God, this is who God is. He's merciful. He shows pity. He's compassionate. Now what about in the New Testament? So the New Testament, I'm going to get a little academic for just a second. So in the middle, in the New Testament, there was, it was written mostly in Greek, all right? So you had the classical Greek that many people might know of, right? And then you had the Greek that was the everyday language of the people. That's what the New Testament was kind of written in. It was called Koine Greek, all right? So you had classical Greek and Koine Greek, all right? In classical Greek, there was no real word to describe the compassion that the gospel writers had, that like the gospel writers were trying to describe Jesus as. So they kind of developed their own word to describe this type of compassion. So here already we're seeing like this is who God is. He's a compassionate God. So the world didn't just create compassion. And now there's something unique about Jesus' compassion that the writers and God wanted the writers to say, like, we got to make up a word, to develop a word that describes how unique his compassion is. And the, the root word that we get compassion from in the Bible is the same root English word that we get spleen from, all right? So, like, our inner, like, insides, all right? That's what's going on here. We're going to feel something deep within us. We're going to feel a sense of pity and not in a demeaning way. Like you look upon somebody's situation and you go, man, that's not right. That's not okay. And we feel that deep within us. That's what's going on here. Like for Jesus. He is looking upon the crowds. He is seeing the crowds. And as he sees the crowds, he feels in his innermost parts this sense of pity for them. Like this is not okay. This is not okay. And he's deeply moved. Now, a lot of you, you know the feeling like inside of you, like when like you're deeply moved within, right? Like when you were a, guys, when you called your uh, girlfriend or a girl that you liked for the first time ever, all right? Some of you are like, I don't know what calling somebody. I just text them all the time, right? So I'm giving you my age a little bit. But in middle school, you like got this girl's phone number and you decide like, I'm going to call her. And then you like... You breathe deeply for like an hour, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, oh, my stomach's churning, right? Like, there's this feeling deep within you that says like, ah, I don't know about this, right? Or maybe before a big sporting event, big game, like, you walk on the field and you're like, this is a big deal. And like, the butterflies are turning inside. Like, there's something turning inside here for Jesus, but it's not butterflies. There's something much, much deeper going on. There's this feeling of like, there's brokenness. And this situation that I'm looking upon is not okay. And he has this deep sense of compassion. He's deeply moved with pity on these people. Why? So he sees the crowd. He feels this deep pity. And then it says, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. This is not the first time... This phrase shows up in the Bible. In fact, in Numbers 27, this is Moses. And Moses has been the leader of the Israelites. And he knows that his life's about to come to an end. And so he's praying, God, who's the next leader going to be? Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as... 
sheep that have no shepherd. All right? So that's the first time this phrase shows up. Wait, I'm going to die. God, who are you going to put in leadership over these people? All right? Now, in 1 Kings 22, you have a prophet named Micaiah. All right? Not a popular prophet, but a guy named Micaiah. And he is prophesying against King Ahab, who's a really wicked king over the Israelites. And he says... I saw, so this is the prophet, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Israelites under a wicked king, God says, these are sheep without a shepherd. Israelites, when Moses is going to die, these are sheep without a shepherd. Now Jesus is saying, I looked and I had compassion upon these people. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what is the issue that Jesus is trying to get to here? It's an issue of improper leadership that leads to shepherdless people. Improper leadership that leads to shepherdless people. There are people that are operating in life without a shepherd. That's where Jesus' like heart cry is going after right here. People are operating in life like sheep without a shepherd. This was far more troubling to Jesus than just his people being under Roman government oppression. It was far worse for him. There was a deeper issue than just the physical health needs that he was healing as he went about his life. There was something deeper going on. People were living like sheep without a shepherd. Because oftentimes what we find is that physical health and physical renewal wasn't the highest priority for Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 32 through 38, we see this. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon, so this is Peter, all right, and those who were with him searched for him. They can't find Jesus. Where's Jesus at? We got to find him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So what's the point here? There's a lot of need, right? There's a lot of physical need. There's a lot of oppression happening. And then Jesus goes off to pray. And everybody's like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And Simon and the followers go find him. Like, Jesus, they're all looking for you. They all need you. And what does Jesus say? We need to go to the next town. Because that's why I came. I need to preach in the next town. Some points in our lives when we seek compassion, we can't just, just see the needs right on the surface in front of us. There's a deeper need that Jesus was seeing. Now, to be clear, Jesus didn't turn a blind eye to these things. Again, all of chapter 9, we see him not turning a blind eye. Like, he's addressing those situations, and he's often healing people in those situations. But the real issue for Jesus was there's a deeper problem. People were living like sheep without a shepherd. Everybody else is seeing the tip of the iceberg. He's seeing much deeper. 
Because Jesus and his followers, they see something deeper than homelessness. They see something deeper than addiction. Do they address those things? Yes, absolutely. But that's not the end goal. So you may know people who are harassed and helpless by addiction. The end goal isn't just for them to be sober. The end goal is for them to be sober and pursuing Jesus as their king. Because Jesus did not negate these issues that were on the surface. But he sees deeper and he feels deeper and he enters in. And what he really sees when he sees shepherdless people is he sees people that were created in the image of God. And he looks upon those crowd as image bearers of God. And what he sees is, man, there's brokenness. These people that were created in the image of God have been separated from God because of their sin. And now they're operating as harassed people, as helpless people, because of they're separated from God. Now, other people are operating that way because sinful people have treated them and put them in those spots. But either category... What we've got to see here is that Jesus had compassion on those people. He saw them. He had compassion. And he goes, there's something deeper going on. There's something deeper. Because what happens when we live as shepherdless people? When we live as shepherdless people, people who aren't led well and guided well and protected well and fed well by a true good shepherd, we start to live for sin and self. And God describes the Israelites, this way in Judges 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There's no shepherd. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When they didn't have a king, they did whatever they wanted in their own eyes. Now some of you guys, is that wrong? Well, this is in complete contrast to doing what was right in the Lord's eyes. So God's, Jesus is looking on these people and go, wait, you're shepherdless. You don't have a good shepherd. And you're doing what is right in your own eyes. If it feels right, you're doing it. They're going, well, I just need to be me and you do you. And Jesus is going, that's operating like a shepherdless person. You are living for yourself. That is not the way I'm operating. Shepherdless people wander aimlessly. Shepherdless people get lost easily. Shepherdless people can't see the danger ahead of them. Shepherdless people don't know where to find real satisfying food. The bread of life. They need a good shepherd. So what does shepherdless people look like in our own lives? A shepherdless person may look like your neighbor with a drinking problem. It may look like your coworker with an anger problem. It may look like somebody that's homeless. It may look like somebody that's in prison. It may look like Yuma, who before this week was a shepherdless person, and a few weeks ago may not have ever even heard the name of Jesus. 
just like two to three billion people in our world that have no access to the name of Jesus. We have access on almost every corner to Jesus. There are two to three billion people in our world that have never even heard the name of Jesus. And if if you went to them and said, hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? They might say, are you talking about somebody from another village? No, I'm talking about the Savior of the world. And they've never heard about it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about shepherdless people. People that are broken because of sin. And in the midst of this, Jesus sees the crowds and he feels deeply for them because they're broken and they're lost without God. When is the last time you felt deep pity for someone in their circumstances? When is the last time you felt deep pity for someone in broken circumstances? Now, I get that feeling deeply can be a little confusing, all right? Because there's some of you, you are deep feelers in this room, right? A lot of you in a younger generation, you're deep, deep feelers. And there are tears and lament when you see brokenness. Others of you in this room, you're engineers at Collins, right? Like, (laughs) sorry. You're like, that's very stereotypical. But your wife is, or your spouse is shaking their head saying amen right now. Um, Like, I get it. Not everybody has these deep, like, feelings, right? Guys, but we cannot use, like, different personalities as an excuse to not feel broken over the broken things in this world. So, yes, some of you may cry over the brokenness and lament over the brokenness. Some of you may say, we need to come up with a plan for this. Let's, let's take the hill. I'm going to create an action plan for it. Others of you say, man, I'm going to sacrificially give tons of money to be able to help this situation. So feeling might look different for different personalities in the room. But please, guys, don't use your personality as an excuse not to be compassionate. Please. Guys, if your heart has become calloused, Every time you see a homeless person, if your heart is calloused and you hear about the unreached people groups and you're just like, ah, whatever. If your heart's become calloused by an alcoholic, if your heart isn't compassionate toward a Democrat or a Republican and it's just hard and calloused, at minimum, I would ask you to question if you're abiding in Jesus well. And to the maybe the worst extent, I would ask, is the Spirit of God even dwelling in you? Now, Charles Spurgeon, many of you know Spurgeon, he was uh, much more blunt than I am. Uh, he pastored a congregation in the 1800s in the city of London, and this is what he said. He said, What? Live ye in London, move ye about in this great metropolis. So you're you're seeing London, you're moving about, living your life, and do you never have the heartache, never feel your soul ready to burst with pity? Then shame upon you. Ask yourself whether you have the spirit of Christ at all. Like there's some of you in here you go, Yeah, I'm just a I'm not really a, a, a feeler, I'm not really compassionate. Be careful, because Jesus was. Now, again, those personality differences exist, and that feeling may come out differently. 
But Jesus was compassionate. He felt deeply. Now, what did he do with those feelings? Verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what Jesus does is he clarifies the need, and then he takes action. He says, yes, there's a lot of shepherdless people in this world. You don't even realize how many there are. The harvest is plentiful of them. Shepherdless people are plentiful in this world, and there's a labor shortage. And we know over the past few years what labor shortages have done, right? They've closed down things. Guys, we don't want to be shut down as the kingdom of God because there's a labor shortage. We look upon the crowds as his followers and we go, man, I've got to do something about this. This is not okay. We can't keep living this way. So Jesus, having that compassion, feeling deeply, seeing the crowds, What does he do? He instructs his disciples. Hey, let me tell you about this. There's instruction that takes place. In other parts of the Gospels, he sees this woman, and he has compassion on her, and then he teaches her. He sees a crowd that's really hungry, and he feeds them, but he teaches them as well. There's action that takes place here. And Jesus' answer goes far below the surface. The answer isn't, I'm just going to fix you on the surface. The answer is, hey, we got to pray. We got to pray because there's a plentiful harvest of shepherdless people, and we better pray that God would send laborers. And then, if you remember back to what I said about the context of chapter 10, which we're not going to get in. What does he do next? After, hey, we need to pray when we have this compassion stirring us. Pray that God would send laborers. And what does he do next? He sends laborers. The answer isn't simply, okay, I just need to pray about it. You should pray about it when stirred with compassion. But then you go live as an everyday missionary. Not necessarily having to go to Thailand. Maybe going right next door to the person that's shepherdless and says, let me tell you about the good shepherd. Jesus takes action here. Jesus saw something, he felt something, and he did something. He wasn't simply empathetic to them, but we moved beyond empathy for him. He said, man, we got to send more compassionate evangelists into this world. We're not just sending people that are tolerating sin into this world. We're not just sending people that are just going to be activists. We're not just sending people who are intellectual and go, man, I know there's broken people and I know there's a good God, but I'm just going to sit back and know things. There's something more than that. He said, man, the answer to the world's deepest problem is not just feeling it, but I'm going to feel this deepest sense of pity for them. And then I'm going to pray that God would send out laborers. And then I'm going to send out laborers. Compassionate evangelists, purely motivated missionaries missionaries is what Jesus was going after. Now again, for clarity, if you read the rest of chapter 9, compassion isn't void of love. Compassion isn't void of mercy. Compassion isn't void of justice or intellect. So when we think about 
everybody in our world valuing compassion. What makes compassion for Jesus and his followers different from the compassion of the world? This is how I would say it. Jesus' compassion provides a depth of attention, care, and solution unlike anything the world offers. Jesus' compassion provides a depth of attention. He pays attention more, more deeply. His followers pay attention more deeply. They care more deeply. And they provide the deepest solution possible. And it's unlike anything that this world has to offer. The the, The world might offer a bed. Jesus and his followers might offer a bed and a home in glory. This world may offer to clean you up and help you get clean. A follower of Jesus might help you get clean and offer you clothes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. We go much deeper below the surface because that's what Jesus did. Jesus saw the deepest problems. He felt the deepest feelings. And he offered the deepest solution. So how does this play out in our lives? It starts with us seeing. And as we see the crowds, we feel compassion for those people that are broken. And then we pray. We pray hard. We pray to our good God who saw those people far more quickly than we saw them. And then we are sent out. We don't just drive by and say, I'm going to pray for you today. Like, we might stop our car, get out, and engage with them. We're moved by suffering. We get involved. We demonstrate Jesus' compassion and we proclaim the gospel. But here's what I need you to know. It's going to be costly. And following Jesus is costly. It's going to require a lot of heartache, potentially. It might require a lot of time. It might require a lot of money. But Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And you go like, are there there really people that do this? Yes. Because this is how Jesus himself lived his life. Right? Right? When we were broken in the midst of our sin, dead in our sins and trespasses, Jesus, moved with compassion, does what? He gets hung on a cross because he's so compassionate. Compassion led him to the cross. Did it cost Jesus something? Yes, it cost him everything. Does compassion cost us something? Yes, our lives. And Jesus is worth it. Guys, imagine if we become a church where we feel deep pity for the world. Again, not in a demeaning sake, but we look upon our world and go, man, this is not right, this is broken. And imagine a group of people who are unashamed in Jesus being the only solution for those problems. Because we don't want to be a compassion-centered church without the gospel. There are many of those churches in this world who do great social work 
And those churches can't remember the last time somebody was baptized and their life transformed by Jesus. We don't want to be that church. They do a lot of social stuff to fix surface level problems. But they don't remember the last time a pastor called them to repentance because of their sin. We don't want to be a compassionate church without the gospel. But my bigger fear is that we become a gospel-centered church without compassion. That we know a lot about this Bible and we have a ton of knowledge. And we look out upon the brokenness and say, yeah, we know why you're that way. You're broken. I could show you the Bible verse for it. And we're not moved with compassion. That's not the kind of church we want to be either. We want to be a gospel-centered church full of compassion. The compassion of Jesus. Who sees deeply. Who feels deeply. And says, the only thing that I can offer you, the best thing that I can offer you, is a good shepherd and his name is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that we as Veritas, we would we would live different lives in the world around us. God, when we see somebody without a bed, I pray that we would offer a bed, we would offer a home. But God, please help us to remember that that doesn't solve the whole problem. Help us to offer a home in glory through Jesus. God, protect us from being a church that doesn't center our lives upon the gospel. And God, please, please protect us from lacking compassion. God, we can't do this without you. We need you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.